Uh, we are going to be looking at that passage, so if you had a Bible open, it would be good to keep it on Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we'll be referencing it uh, throughout. But I'm going to continue in prayer as we go on. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is always with us, a God who guides us and shows us your will. We pray now as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, uh, that you help us to, to deal with anything that we find confronting or difficult to understand, uh, that you will open our hearts and our minds to clearly know your will, uh, your, your love for us, but also your desire for what we do going forward. Lord, we pray especially that you guide the words that are spoken, that they are words that bring glory to your name and honour to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to think, uh, what is a key point? Um, what, what does it take to have a uh, good relationship with a human being? Um, keys to a successful relationship, so to speak. Uh, it's interesting as we think about relationships, we tend to instinctively go straight to the, the marriage relationship and talk about the key points of what makes a good marriage. Uh, but the reality is, if you look at all the advice of marriage and everything like that, it's almost identical to the same realities of what it is to be a good friend. Uh, a true relationship, a true deep intimate relationship, uh, is not necessarily based on any sort of physical intimacy or anything like that, uh, but can be found in any sort of moment in life with people. Uh, true, I have met men and women who have deep personal intimate friendships uh, with others that are just as fruitful as those who have deep personal intimate relationships with their husbands or wives. Uh, and today in our passage, uh, God is coming to his people. Uh, we are drawing near the end of uh, this section of Moses' speech where he has spent the last three chapters outlining the history of Israel from the moment they left Mount Sinai to the point of now. And as you remember last week, we looked at the idea that the people of God uh, doubted God, didn't trust God, and ultimately actually rejected his salvation. And in turn, he told that generation before that you will not enter the promised land. And now he is talking to the people of God here uh, and he is discussing with them what it is for them to be in a relationship as they go forward. And he actually begins this chapter uh, of chapter 4 with this instruction. And he says, Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Uh, Moses is about to outline to the people of God uh, what is expected of them as they enter the kingdom of God. And really this whole section of Deuteronomy, this whole section of, of law and everything like that, uh, it can be really confronting because it seems like God is just outlining a set of rules that God's people have to follow. But really this entire area... This entire passage is about what is expected of you if you are going to be in a relationship with me. Now, those of you who might think that's a bit absurd, I encourage you to think about your own personal relationships, and I guarantee you, whether you say them or don't, you have rules in your relationship. You have expectations on the other person, and when the other person fails to meet those expectations, it can destroy them. Some of those expectations are probably very reasonable. Be around care for me, show me affection. Some of them might be unreasonable. I'm not going to say any because you might have one of those and I don't want to make you feel bad. But every relationship has rules, whether we acknowledge it or not. And in this passage, God has outlined, you are about to go into my land, so you are going to follow my rules. And the interesting thing is that Moses actually hasn't even outlined what these rules, these laws are. But the point of it is God is saying, I am going to begin a relationship with you as my people. 
And as he continues in the following verses, he highlights what happens when people don't be in a relationship with him. But going forward, he wants the people of God to know what are some key factors of being in a relationship with him. And the first real key factor that he highlights is that it's a relationship that is seen. A relationship with God, as God's people, is not something that is to be hidden away and kept secret. As he says in the, in the following verses, in verses 5 and 6, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to these nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Moses is referring here to the, the laws that he hasn't actually stated in Deuteronomy, but no doubt he's referring to the laws of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that the people of God would know well at this point. And Moses is saying, as you go forward into this promised land, you are, your relationship with God is something that needs to be noticed. When people are in a, a positive and happy relationships, we tend to take notes. Uh, I have witnessed some people go from quite awful relationships into really encouraging and strong friendships and things like that. It's amazing the transformation that it has in a person, the confidence it can bring about. Uh, Just a, a good friend who's got your back can make you feel great, and people notice that. And what Moses is actually saying is that by being obedient to God's law, as God's people, the world will look at them and go, something is different. Something is, is unusual. Something is strange, in a good way. There is wisdom here that we don't understand. And the relationship, the, the law and the nature of God's relationship with his people is to set them apart from the rest of the world. Not only does it set them apart in their success, but how the wisdom of God flows out to the people around them. As he says in Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 to 8. Oh, I don't have it for you. Just listen carefully. Um, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great to have such a righteous decree and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? That's Deuteronomy 4 and 7. 4, 7, 8, sorry. The nature of ancient worship, it's a difficult thing to pat down because there's so many different ancient worship practices. But ultimately, when you, you look into the history of it, as particularly in the, the ancient Near East, it was essentially just a game of guessing. I mean, imagine you live in that world for this time. You don't have the scientific understanding of why the wind blows, why the rain falls, why does the earth shake, why do animals attack? It'd be terrifying. You don't know how anything works. And so the the people of the world looked to gods that they essentially invented to worship in the hopes of understanding what to do, but they always guessing. They were sacrificing in the hopes that it would make God happy. They were doing other things. They would try to divine the will of God, but in the end people were guessing and often were corrupted and used their positions as prophets and others for their own benefits. And yet what the nations see in the people of God is that they are a people who know their God. They are a people who know the will of their God, the wants of their God, who understand fully who their God is and how they are to respond to him 
in kind. Today, the, uh, I would say in, in our Western culture, the biggest God of the day is the God of the self. And the problem is that as much as I think we try to worship the God of the self, I don't think any of us actually really know how to worship ourselves very well. The pursuit of pleasure, of, of, of what we want and need, it doesn't fill us with contentment. It can make us happy, sure. But are we a better society because we worship ourselves? I don't think so. Do people look to us as wise and... and and going, no, in fact, in younger generations, you're seeing a rise of a greater pessimistic nature to life and upbringing and everything. They look at the world as falling apart and failing. The God of the self doesn't know what it wants. But the God of Deuteronomy, the God of the Bible, makes it clear to those who worship him exactly what he wants. And so they worship with confidence that they are not guessing, but are in fact fully informed of their God. Is a relationship that is seen by those around them. A relationship that is obvious to the other nations. Secondly, it's a relationship that is revered. Uh, thinking back to your friends or, or, or your, your treasured people in your life, how many of you sort of admire... Don't put your hand up because they might be in the room and you might feel uncomfortable. But how many of you admire the people that you're with? The, the person that you're married to, your, your best friends, your, even your children or family. I actually think a key aspect of, of, of being in a good relationship is you have to look at that person as someone you admire, not in the sense of he's such a, a great dancer or whatever, but in the sense of that person is someone that I love, I cherish, and I keep in my heart always. To revere God is to acknowledge and remember him always. And in this passage, he makes it clear that that reverence is so important. He reminds them not just of his closeness, but in the wonder of his power. As, as I read to you from verses, uh, it's a bit more, but the verse on the screen is verses 4 to 9, but I'll read a bit more around it. Uh, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that, when, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to your children after them. Remember the day... You stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountains while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and with deep darkness. Again, as he did in chapter 1, God draws his people back to Mount Sinai. And he draws them back. The reason why Mount Sinai is such a significant event because it's, it's the first time in Israel's history where they as a nation were fully aware of God's presence and God directly addresses them as one people. If you look in the book of Exodus uh, before that, God always talks to specific people. He talks to Abraham. He talks to Jacob. He talks to Joseph. He talks to Moses when he's freeing the people from Egypt. But here at Sinai is when he addresses the nation and they know he is present. They hear the thunder, they see the clouds, and they are aware that their God is fully with them. And this is what God actually says to them in the book of Exodus at this point. He says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I realise I didn't give you context to this, but Mount Sinai, which is often referred to as Mount Horeb in, De in Deuteronomy, is the place in which God gave his people the Ten Commandments. 
And here, what we actually see in this moment, and in the the verses, words expressed in Exodus chapter 19, is that God is expressing his relationship to them and how it is tied to his law. God instructs his people on how to live. And in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is reminding them of the wonder that it was to stand before their God and hear this instruction. To know that their God sees them as a treasured possession. And I, and I know we today our colloquial language sees the, the terminology of possession as, as, as a de- dangerous term. Um, but back then it didn't have the same kind of connotations. It was a, a lovely expression of something that is loved and treasured. They will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What other, what other God in history has singled out a group of people to be his people? What other people can say they witnessed their God in person? And Moses is reminding them, you need to remember this. As you go forward into this relationship with God in the promised land, you need to remember the wonder of God that has called us. But not only are they meant to remember and, and, and be in awe of, of his, his calling, but also in awe and reverence to his form, or lack of. As we read in Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 to 16, it says, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you, Horeb, out of the fire. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like man or woman. Moses actually then spends the, the next section of Deuteronomy that we, in our reading today discussing to them why they shouldn't, well, not even why they shouldn't, just telling them, don't worship idols. And it seems to be the biggest temptation that the people of God face is their idol worship. Uh, and I don't, I don't know about you, but particularly when I was reading this when I was a younger kid, I just, I never got it. I'm like, why, why do you keep worshipping idols? Like, I don't. I don't feel drawn to worship an idol. Um, But again, idol worship is very different to what we think it is. For many people, idol worship was about trying to get the outcome you wanted in life, even if you were told something different. Uh, It's no coincidence that many of the the times that the worship of idol happens to God's people is because God tells them something and they don't trust him. So they go and worship another idol. Uh, And idol worship was almost like picking and choosing the God you wanted to teach you something, the God you wanted to listen to. It was a way of almost essentially justifying your behaviours in life because that God said it was okay. I worshipped that God and I'm okay. And in fact, it was actually a weakness of God's people. They were seen as weak because they didn't have idols to worship. Uh, if If you go back to the book of Exodus and you read the description of the Ark of the Covenant, there's these two wings on cherubim that come over to the centre and you would expect looking at every other ancient form of worship, there would be some sort of idol in the middle being held up by the wings. And yet God instructs them to keep that space empty always. Because the God that they worship is not a God bound to human wants or desires. He's not a God bound to nature. In fact, he actually explains it more in the following verses. When you look up to the sky and you see the sun, the moon, and all the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his inheritance, as you now are. He kind of highlights the flaw in worshipping the created world. He he moves on from wooden idols to worshipping the sun, the moon, and the stars, and God's point is that I don't have an idol to be worshipped because I made everything. I've made the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in it. 
and you, the world will see me through you. But it's also interesting that he highlights this, this nature with his then redeeming qualities. I took you out of the iron smelting furnace of Egypt. God makes it clear in these instructions that he, the relationship with him is to be a relationship of exclusivity. It is a relationship that is based around the redeeming act of God, bringing his people out of slavery in Exodus. It also helps us understand why alliances with God, other nations in the Bible, as we read on, becomes really difficult. Uh, verse 24, he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He makes it clear that, that they are not to worship any other gods or they will lose their relationship with him. That's why in the New Testament, when we talk about Jesus and the church, it's described as the bride and the groom, a relationship that no one else enters into. And the difficulty they had was that other nations worshipped other gods, and one of the general rules of negotiating treaties with other nations was that you would worship those other gods. That's why God forbids the practice of allying themselves with other nations when the worships of God was involved. The final part of God's relationship, the final key that God highlights here in this passage, uh, is that it's a relationship that is remembered. Uh, God lays out, as it's pretty tragic as we read this in verses 25 to 28, that the people of God will still fail. They will go to the land, they will prosper, and eventually they will worship other idols, and God will leave them. It's interesting, if you actually read later on in Deuteronomy, you see that God picks the people of Israel not because they are a strong and mighty nation, but because they are weak. And in their weakness, he can show his strength. And so, yes, God brings his judgment down upon the people of Israel, but often his judgment is simply removing himself from the equation so that they are defeated by those around them, as we saw in chapter 1. But the point of this, 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 this outcome that God lays out is that God is actually paving the way for something much better to come. And ultimately, God is, is allowing room for forgiveness. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, so this is the state of destruction and despair, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. God leaves the door open in the book of Deuteronomy, for forgiveness. Amen. And he draws, he draws us back to the original covenant of Abraham in which he promised Abraham that his descendants would grow and ultimately, as a final outcome, they would be a blessing to the whole world. And what we see here is God is outlining and, and prophesying, and you'll see it throughout Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at it later on because there's some beautiful stuff in here, the future of the world to come through the people of Israel. And ultimately that future is they will fail, they will face destruction, but God will bring something greater. God will bring ultimate forgiveness. God will bring us a relationship that is redeemed. The people of God will fail. We have failed. 
But through the promises of Abraham, through the wonder of his mercy, God has brought Jesus into this world. So as we read in Galatians 3, verse 7, that those who have faith are now children of Abraham. Those who seek forgiveness are now adopted sons and daughters. The relationship between us and God is bound in our relationship with Jesus. It has to be. As you read in Deuteronomy, the history of humanity's ability to follow God's commands is poor. It is a history of failure. But is it a history of God constantly coming back and giving mercy to his people? And in Christ, as we we look at Deuteronomy and we see the law expressed in the relationship with God, and then we look to the cross, we look to Jesus, we see that he is the final and utter completion of this original relationship, this original law. As he says, not not an ink of the law will fade away till I have finished what needs to be done. And so in Jesus now, we have a same relationship that the people of God had in Deuteronomy. We have a relationship that is seen. Uh, I often uh, joke, because I'm a bit of a cynical person, that new Christians are the most annoying people. Because they are so excited, they are so joyful, they are so thankful that they cannot hide it. And in my, in my confessions, I, I admit that sometimes I don't support them the way that I should because they're also the most vulnerable. Because they're so obvious, they're a target. But they are seen for what they believe. They are seen to have faith in Jesus Christ. And they are seen because they know they are forgiven. We know we are forgiven. Amen. And my challenge to you, it's, it's not necessarily to go out and, and you know, run down the street saying Christ has risen, although it might be a good idea just for fun, but it's to to look into your heart, to reflect on the reality. Is Jesus the thing that you are focusing on? Because ultimately, as we see the next point, is that the relationship with Jesus is something that needs to be revered. I said earlier, we worship the God of self, the God of money, the God of pleasure, the God of comfort and safety. But do we worship the God of the cross? The God of sacrifice? The God who calls us to take our cross and carry him. And that's hard to do when we worship a God out of blind obedience, but when we worship a God out of reverence and awe, because he has died for you. It's a very different thing to consider. The people of God saw their God on Mount Sinai. They revered their God and they were told not to worship anything else but him. And now we see the cross in the word of God through the Holy Spirit. And we do the same. We hold on to the assurance that we have in him. Because ultimately we know that it's a relationship that is remembered. In that we know that we're going to screw up. We're going to fail a lot. I've probably failed a lot this morning. But Christ hasn't forgotten me, or abandoned me, or given me up. His blood, his cross, his power overcomes all in this world. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you. For we will not forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. That is the same covenant we share at the cross. 
My encouragement for us this week is to live as if we are in a relationship with Jesus. That could sound really wrong depending on the context you hear that phrase, but in this instance, you know what I mean. To live to be in a relationship that you want to be seen, in a relationship that you revere, and in a relationship where you know you are remembered and treasured. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has brought us up out of slavery, that you have, have brought us from the freedom of sin into the cross and to your family. Father, we pray that you'll help us to acknowledge you always, to love you in all that we do, uh, and to serve you until the day that you return. In Jesus' name, amen.